Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Here's why you should watch today's show. A marriage many would have dreamed of. GameStop partners with FTX. We'll discuss how significant this is and what it means for investors, meaning you. And then, plus, we'll do a deep dive into crypto investing with a crypto hedge fund manager. We'll break down our conversation with Brian Estes down into key takeaways for you. My name is Paul Guerra. Ash Bennington is, of course, here as well. Don't forget to subscribe and smash that like button for the YouTube algorithm or join us on the Real Vision platform. All right, guys, so let's jump right into the latest price action. The European Central Bank has just raised interest rates by a record 75 basis points, as expected. The fight against inflation remains firmly the driving factor in macro. And then some analysts point out that this continues to spill over into crypto prices. So here we see again when macro affects crypto. The total crypto market cap is still playing with a $1 trillion level for what it feels like the hundredth time this year. You know, it's been bouncing on and off with a $1 trillion level. And we're seeing some recovery for Bitcoin. The largest cryptocurrency has stabilized around $19,000. However, it remains one of the biggest underperformers on a weekly basis, though its market cap dominance also continues to fall. It's now just above 37.8%, down from the 48% that it had back in June, and it is the lowest it's been since 2018. Ash, how is Ethereum performing today? Well, you know, Paul, it's a story we've seen on most days lately, at least, which is that Ethereum is making bigger moves than Bitcoin. It staged a stronger recovery, and it's firmly in the green for the week. Uh, we're also looking at Ethereum Classic as it continues to make big moves. That trades as ETC. Ethereum Classic, as you'll remember, is a cryptocurrency that preserved the legacy blockchain after the 2016 Ethereum hard fork. Ethereum Classic has emerged as potential destination for some Ethereum miners after the merge. It's because once Ethereum moves from proof of work to proof of stake, Ethereum mining will cease. Ethereum Classic is once again surging and is up double digits on a weekly basis, Paul. That's right, Ash. And finally, we're keeping an eye on FTT, and that is the native token of the cryptocurrency exchange FTX. We have a chart here for you guys, and it joined a boost after the exchange announced a partnership with GameStop, which brings us to our top story of the day. So, when you have the company behind arguably the biggest and most talked about trading stories of 2021, team up with one of the biggest names in crypto, you know, there are bound to be fireworks on social media. Go trending for hours, which it did. This tweet by Sam Bagman fried the CEO of FTX, says it all. Check it out. <laughs> we like the... A clear reference to the GameStop mania encapsulated by the phrase, I like the stock. Seen across Reddit forum Wall Street bets, which caused a lot of news during the last few months. And Ash... 
We've seen GameStop turn more and more into the world of crypto as it seeks to reinvent its flagging business. You know, they've done NFTs and so much more things. Details are scarce at this stage, but what could be in it for FTX and GameStop? What are your thoughts? Well, you know, it's an interesting play. Obviously, this is a partnership, not an acquisition, important to point out. I think what this potentially, potentially gives Sam Bankman-Fried is access to retail locations. Uh, it also gives him uh, an interesting story to tell. It's a marketing story, uh, I guess you could say, above all else. But look, it is an interesting one, and I don't want to be too cynical in saying sort of just dismissing it as a marketing story. Uh, obviously, these guys have brick and mortar. They have some logistics. So it is potentially interesting to see. You know, Rouse pointed out that in many ways, uh, the value of these network is equivalent to or uh, proportional to the number of users. Obviously, GameStop may help uh, Sam Bankman-Fried to reach more of a mass audience. Lots more people uh, perhaps have walked into a GameStop store over the last decade or so. Uh, than have traded on FTX here in the U.S. just in terms of sheer numbers, speculating there. But it does make a little bit of sense when you think about trying to build a brand. Uh, so it's an interesting story, and we're going to keep an eye on it and see what actually materializes on the ground in terms of actual pragmatic applications, Paul. All right, Ash, thanks for that. And you know, the deal with GameStop is just one example of FTX's increased appetite for big business moves. They've been doing it all year, and it's in the making, which brings us to our next story. And that is that Voyager assets are going to be auctioned off and the remaining assets of Voyager Digital, the bankrupt crypto broker, will be auctioned off next week. FTX has publicly expressed interest in the past, but the offer was dismissed by Voyager's lawyers. And you know, the bids for the auction have already been submitted. The crypt reports that 22 parties expressed interest in early August. Alongside the sale process, Voyager has been working to return some money to its customers. Specifically, last month, the New York bankruptcy court handling the case approved a proposal to return $270 million to the affected customers, and another $1 billion of the platform's remaining funds will be distributed through the bankruptcy process. And as part of this process, users have been sent emails, listings, the types and the amounts of the crypto they have in their Voyager accounts. Those who disagree with the record of their holdings have until October the 3rd to submit a claim. Ash, here for Voyager's court filing had revealed liabilities of up to $10 billion, and that's a lot of money. That suggests to me that Voyager customers are not going to get a lot of their money back. Uh, what do you make of this? Well, you know, ultimately what it depends on is the uh, amount for which those assets sell for, obviously, relative to the liabilities. I think some folks in crypto are suddenly getting a crash course in bankruptcy law here. Uh, it <laughs> appears that essentially what's happening is that depositors, we use that in double quotes here, are being treated essentially like general creditors. Uh, that's all about the priority of the distribution of assets uh, in the event of insolvency, as we've seen here. You know, look, the reality here is there are likely to be lawsuits on on top of lawsuits, we remember this from the bankruptcy of Lehman Brothers in 2008. Those lawsuits went on for a very long time. Different classes of creditors arguing about the allocation of funds. Uh, so that, I suspect, is what we're going to see here to some extent, probably not to the level of complexity that we saw in Lehman Brothers, but who knows? Because again, this really is unprecedented, this idea of depositors, not really depositors if uh, under the law you're being treated just as a general unsecured creditor. I think it's important to talk a little bit about CFI here and the way this 
this story uh, has actually unfolded. CFI functions more like TradFi than like DeFi uh, in that it is very much subject to fallible human decision making. Uh, so when you see uh, folks who are in the management of these companies making poor decisions, it looks like a, just a traditional sort of TradFi story where you have you have you know, challenges with risk management, uh, asset allocation, all of these things, um, you know, that ultimately come back to negatively impact uh, the folks who are now just general creditors. I guess the difference here between TradFi and CFI is that in a TradFi environment, depositors are treated with more legal protections. By the way, I should say DeFi has risks all its own, which we've covered on this show before in terms of technical risk, uh, security, hacks, all kinds of different things. As I've said before, I see BTR, it's cool but there's risk. Uh, I should also point out that there were people, particularly Bitcoiners, who warned about these risks in CFI. Uh, and furthermore, some CFI institutions remain solvent. This isn't the case uh, that's happened across the board. We've seen it, of course, in Celsius. We've seen it in Voyager Digital, as you point out here. Uh, as Bitcoiners say, not your keys, not your coin. Uh, I would add on top of that, even if they are your keys, uh, there's always risk in crypto. That's right, Ash. There's always risk in crypto. And yeah, as you said, we have also the Celsius and the lawsuit after lawsuit. There's Terra. There's going to be a lot of lawsuits happening. And that's something that's going on as we speak. And that moves us actually to our next story. Finally, we had a blurry of U.S. regulatory voices speaking out in the past 24 hours and more coming today. Crucially, we heard from the new Federal Reserve Vice Chairman for Supervision, Michael Barr. And his views are particularly interesting because he used to be an advisor at Ripple Labs, the crypto company behind the XRP token that's locked in a lawsuit with the SEC. And in his first speech since taking office, Barr said on Wednesday that crypto needs similar oversight to traditional bank activity. So that's to your point, Ash, when you see CFI and TradFi, there is some regulation coming. And his comments were echoed by another Fed vice chair, Lyle Brainard. She also made the case for more regulation. So regulation is a heavy theme happening right now in the U.S., and it seems that regulation is coming. And the blog is citing now a taken-down report by Barron's on remark by Gary Gensler, the SEC chairman, from a speech expected later today. So keep an eye on that. And according to the report, Gensler will push back against the crypto industry's reluctance to accept regulation and its enforcement. Ash. What sort of a regulatory picture does all of this point for the United States? Well, you know, Vice Chair Barr called stablecoins, and I quote, unregulated private money, and then went on to say, quote, Congress should work expeditiously to pass much needed legislation to bring stablecoins, particularly those designed to serve as a means of payment inside the prudential regulatory perimeter. Now, if you're a tech person and you're listening to this, this probably sounds like uh, some lawyerly, legalistic sort of regulatory mumbo jumbo. But this is a very clear signal from Vice Chair Barr that regulation is coming. You know, this is something that we've talked about here on this show before. I think it's probably the story of 2022, 23, and 24. This is clearly something that we're going to hear a lot more about. And I would just say, in terms of my view, and I've been thinking about this a lot, we're going to see, I think, three camps here, I think. Ultimately, uh, 
this one the first camp is the no coiners these are the you know the warren buffett's uh and charlie mungers of the world who have basically said cryptocurrency is radioactive avoided at all costs i suspect that camp is probably going to be shrinking a little bit uh, or at least it's kind of going to be off to the side right they're going to be people who hate everything about crypto they're just not going to participate in the space and i don't think they're going to be much part of the conversation but what we're really looking at in my view at least shaping up here is going to be between like a war for the soul of crypto there are going to be folks in this space who really believe in the ideals of decentralization, who believe in the ideals of censorship-resistant money on the one hand, and then there are going to be other people, and this is the important point, Paul, within the crypto space itself who are going to say, we need regulation, we need this to be harmonized with the traditional financial system. And that, I really think, is going to be what this uh, this debate is going to be about uh, in the weeks, months, years, and maybe even decades to come understanding how that shakes itself out. You know, digital money, programmable money, uh, I think is certainly here and I believe it's here to stay. I don't think it's a question of if, but more a question of when and critically, critically, how? Will money be truly decentralized along the sort of libertarian ideals that have governed Bitcoin, for example, or are we going to see more regulation in the space? That really, to me, is the critical open question right now throughout all of crypto. And I think this is a debate that we're going to be having. It's just beginning now, but we're going to be having it for years to come, Paul. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. That's right, Ash. And this is the right moment to actually say for everyone watching, please just like, smash the like button for the YouTube algorithm, and don't forget to subscribe to our channel. And as you said, Ash, yeah, regulation is coming. And if you are new to crypto, you have to know that it is one of the biggest themes for crypto right now, regulation. So if you're new, you have to know that. If you can have a significant impact on how the space is valued going forward, but for now, we have to learn to manage our investments and trades in a crypto winter exacerbated by a negative macro environment. But it is important not to lose track as well of the long-term potential. So here the question is, how do you value it? How do you value crypto? And Ash caught up with Brian Estes, the CIO and CEO of Of The Chain Capital. And he asked Brian how he manages this tricky environment. Let's take a look. Yeah, so this is my third crypto winter I've been through. So I, I think I've become insensitive to it. Um, you know, I don't like seeing the price go go down a lot like most people, but I, I just don't feel the pain anymore. Um, the first time I bought Bitcoin was back in 2014 and 15. Um, at the time, my average cost was around $600. And then about six months later, it was $178. And that felt more painful than it does today because um, that was my first cycle. And then the next cycle was when Bitcoin went from 20,000 down to three. And then this most recent one, it went from 69,000 down to around 18,000. But our models, which have guided us over the last eight years, are confirming that Bitcoin is very, very undervalued. Um, our first model that we use is just basic trend line analysis. And so all we do is we plot out the historical price of Bitcoin on a logarithmic scale. 
And then we run a regression line through the center of that. So half of the value is above that dotted line and half of the values below it. It seems very simplistic to do it that way, but that model is 91% correlated to the historical price of Bitcoin. And that model tells us today that Bitcoin's worth $92,000 and it's trading for like 20,000. So it's, you know, it's telling us that Bitcoin is very, very undervalued. Um, the next model that we use is based off of Metcalf's law. So Metcalf's law is how you value a network um, like Facebook or like a telephone company. Um, so um, the Bitcoin network itself, what we do is we square the number of users, multiply that times the transactional value going through the Bitcoin network. And that model is telling us that Bitcoin should be worth about $42,000 today. And like I said, it's selling for 20. Um, so that's telling us that Bitcoin's 50% undervalued. And that model is 94% correlated to the historical price of Bitcoin. And then our other two models that we use are based off the Plan B stock to flow model. Um, so the, the first one is using dollars. Um, that model is telling us that Bitcoin should be worth about $100,000 today, should be worth a million dollars of Bitcoin in 2025, and $10 million of Bitcoin in 2029. And then the stock to flow model using gold as the monetary unit tells us that Bitcoin should be worth 100 ounces of gold today. And it's actually selling for 14 ounces of gold. And so that's also confirming that Bitcoin is very undervalued. And that model says that Bitcoin should be worth 1,000 ounces of gold in 2025 and 10,000 ounces of gold in 2029. And if you think about it, 10,000 ounces of gold is worth about $17 million today. And that's what the model's telling us. That's our most accurate model. It's 99% correlated. Um, we had a call with Plan B last week and we asked them like, you know, what, you know, have you seen this before? Have you seen where your models are so far wrong, right? You know, like they're saying Bitcoin should be, you know, at, you know, 100,000 or, you know, 170,000 if you use gold um, and it's only at 20. And he made a great point because yes, they've been this wrong before. He pointed out in 2013 and 2017, they were this wrong. It was just the opposite, though. Bitcoin was much higher than what his models were showing. And so that makes a great point is that, you know, the model today is confirming that, you know, Bitcoin is very, very undervalued, just like it confirmed it was overvalued when, you know, Bitcoin was at 20,000 in 2017 and when it hit 35 back in 2013. Very interesting to see Brian's approach to evaluating the Bitcoin's network. But Ash, for everyone watching here right now, Brian seems to believe that the network effects are playing a key role for Bitcoin. So could you please elaborate a little more on what Brian meant by the Metcalf's law? Well, you know, Paul, first, obviously not financial advice and not an endorsement of the valuation model that Brian is using here. Uh, just my explanation of his interpretation of his, my interpretation of his view. Uh, but let's geek out a little just for smiles here. Let's actually talk about what Metcalf's Law is, because it's often used but rarely defined. So Metcalf's Law is actually an engineering construct that's been adopted by some investors to describe what, in their view, is the valuation of certain networks. Metcalf's Law, actually, as it turns out, is about any type of network. Robert Metcalf 
Metcalf is the co-inventor of Ethernet. So if you plug an Ethernet yeah. cable into the back of your computer, that's the guy. Wow, no way. Sorry, I didn't, I didn't mean to interrupt. Like, I didn't know that. That's that's really cool. Yeah, yeah. And what this what his law is about, it describes the number of connections uh, between any given number of nodes on the network. Uh, and the formula for that is n, where n is the number of nodes, n times n minus 1 over 2. So it's the number of nodes on the network, which is called n, uh, times n minus 1, because a node can't connect to itself, uh, and over 2, because a connects to b and b connects to a are, are essentially the same connection, but in different directions. I think that's right. I didn't study math as much as I should have, <laughs> knowing that I was going to be doing it for a living. Uh, but if you graph uh, n times n minus 1 over 2, it basically looks identical uh, virtually to n squared, which you know kind of looks like this, right? That's the traditional exponential growth function that you see that's increasing and increasing at an increasing rate. Um, that's just what the formula looks like. But I should make really clear as a word of warning, crypto has not invented a perpetual motion machine for finance. The valuation of these networks uh, based on this valuation model only grows exponentially if the number of users on that network keeps growing. So what Metcalf's law essentially fundamentally is a bet on is in the growth of networks users. Uh, so ultimately, where the growth uh, in the valuation comes from this model, that's what you're looking at. And that's why uh, it's such a powerful way of describing it. But again, two underlying assumptions here. First, that the model holds. And second, that the underlying number of users on the network continues to grow. That's where the exponential growth comes from in this valuation model. But it is an interesting way to at least think about it based on something that we've used in traditional network node modeling in the past to understand the number of connections on the network, Paul. That's right, Ash. And another way of looking at it, it could be the Web 2 era when, let's say, Facebook came around. The network kept growing, so the more users that jumped onto the Facebook platform, the network grew. And so that could be another way of seeing network effects or the Metcalf's law. The more users on the network, its valuation will grow. And now, actually, let's take a look at our second clip where, you know, there's no escaping from the fact that right now, no, uh, one of the biggest driving factors for crypto prices is actually what the Fed is doing. Who would have thought? Again, macro affecting crypto. So let's hear what Brian thinks about the recent rate hikes and their impact. Well, I believe the Federal Reserve is doing the right thing by um, raising rates, trying to reduce inflation. Um, but it's not the 100% correct thing. So in my opinion, I think what we're suffering from is a supply constriction. Um, you know, it's, it, you know, demand, and what the Federal Reserve is trying to do is destroy demand by increasing rates and basically, you know, trying to slow down the economy. When in reality, what needs to happen is we need more production, more supply, more oil, more, you know, lower price fuels. Um, you know, the inflation is being caused because of, you know, I don't want to get political, but there's a lot of you know ESG narratives out there that have constricted the supply of energy, and that's you know a big contributor to inflation. Hmm. And then with the Federal Reserve basically printing money and the government basically just doling out money to people, you know that's created a lot of demand for goods that we don't have because during COVID, you know the economy was partly shut down. And so we need to increase the supply to help alleviate inflation and not just focus on raising rates. Well, that's a really interesting take. And by the way, this narrative also even more powerfully in view 
in Europe where you see Nord Stream 1, one of the major pipelines that supplies Europe with natural gas being shut down again. This is a challenge that we've seen across the globe, this constraint on energy supply. So it's interesting when you talk about the need for more supply, what the Fed policy is doing in, in essence is stamping out demand and suppressing asset prices. You know, Based on your thesis, Brian, it sounds like you have the risk here arising of a kind of positive feedback loop of these negative effects filtering through the economy. Yeah, I mean, there is a pretty good likelihood that this leg down in the stock market that we've seen, you know, that that's just the first leg. You know, there could be several more after that. Um, one of the charts that we talk about in, um, when I teach classes about Bitcoin, I call it the everything bubble. And basically what this shows is that over the last 30 years, as the Federal Reserve has artificially suppressed interest rates, it's jacked up asset values. And there's a big difference today between household net worth and household GDP. And if you think about it, over the last 100 years, the household net worth and your output or your value producing, your GDP, should be about equal. And if you look at the charts, they were equal for a long time until about the mid-90s. And what happened in the mid-90s is that Greenspan started to lower interest rates to stimulate the economy. And over the last 30 years, we've seen asset prices boom and GDP, you know, have its steady growth, but there's a huge gap now between the two, and they should be very, very close together. So one of two things will happen. Either the GDP is going to go up a lot, which I don't think is going to happen, or the asset values are going to come back down to where they should be. And um, if that happens, you know, we're looking for, you know, you know, you know likely a 50% decline in asset values. And it's not just stocks, it's real estate and other types of commodities and scarce assets. And, you know, and so, you know, I, I do think there is some downside here. I, I don't want to scare people, but, you know, th there is a lot of risk out there today. Ash, so let's hear from Brian. Inflation, the so-called everything bubble, and a lot of risk in Brian's view. What is he telling us, Ash? What do you make of all this? So what Brian is talking about here really is the big macro picture. I know this can get a little bit technical for folks uh, who are relatively new to the macro space. So I want to focus on one particular aspect of what Brian said here uh, that I think provides a good illustration of some of his broader points. And that's the chart of household net worth relative to GDP. So what you see when you look at that chart, Paul, is household net worth and GDP really tracking each other very closely for many decades, which if you think about it intuitively makes sense. The net worth of households grows at about the same rate as the overall economy grows. When those two lines start to diverge on that chart, though, is during the Greenspan era at the Fed, when Chairman Greenspan lowered rates, inaugurating an era of accommodative and then ultimately ultra accommodative in the wake of 20, in, in the wake of 2008, ultra-accommodative monetary policy, which, in Brian's view, uh, artificially inflated, I think it's fair to say, from his perspective, 
broad asset valuations. And then to come full circle and return to Brian's point that he made at the beginning of the segment, essentially Brian is saying that the Fed is tamping down demand now uh, by increasing interest rates. And what they need to do is to stimulate supply. He makes this point particularly with regard to energy. So that's kind of the, the overview of what he's talking about here in terms of the macro impact on crypto and some, some normative suggestions for how he believes uh, this really should be handled instead, Paul. All right, Ash, that's a great answer. Thank you so much for explaining this to all of us. And you know, our viewers often ask us when Bitcoin could decouple from macro. So let's see what Brian thinks about this question. If you see this risk of 50% decline in US equity valuations, and we've seen this very long-term high correlation between US equities, particularly growth equities and Bitcoin, does that imply that Bitcoin uh, will also have the risk of those kinds of declines, or do you see it decoupling from some reason? So I, I do see it decoupling. Hmm. So it hasn't decoupled yet. So you're exactly right. Over the past nine months, um, the Nasdaq's gone down and the correlation of Bitcoin to the Nasdaq has jumped from 0.1 up to 0.86. And so it became much highly cor you know, more correlated than historically it has been. Um, if you look on a monthly basis over the last five years, Bitcoin's correlation to the S&P 500 has been around 0 0.06. So, you know, very, you know, very little correlation to the S&P 500. But in the down markets, it does become more correlated. Mm. But I do see that decoupling. And the reason I see it decoupling is because Bitcoin is a network and networks are valued differently than stocks, bonds, real estate, and other traditional assets. And the way we value networks is based off of Metcalf's law. And I mentioned that earlier. You look at the number of users and you square that and you multiply that times the transactional value going through the network. And that's how we determine the value of that network. And that's a completely different way of valuing like stocks on a PE or right. price to book ratio or bonds on cash flow and interest rates or you know or real estate based off of you know the you know uh, other metrics so you know bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are networks and they're valued differently and that's why they're uncorrelated historically over the long term you talk about this future decoupling of bitcoin from the price of us equities in terms of the correlation what might be the catalyst for that decoupling? In other words, what might we be looking for to see when that divergence begins to happen? Or is it just too soon to say what the catalyst might be? Yeah, I, I think the catalyst is trust. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I, I think as we lose trust in the current financial system, people are going to be looking for an alternative. And the alternative is the parallel system that's being built today, which is based off of blockchain technology and Bitcoin. And so, you know, a lot of, you know, some people are thinking, you know, there's a 1% chance of that happening. So they may have 1% of their net worth and these assets, but as their trust starts to diminish in the current system, they'll be allocating more and more to that parallel system. And that's what I, I see happening. It's all based on trust in the current system. 
I appreciate Brian's input here because we can certainly see that macro affects crypto. Ash, what do you think will be a catalyst for the so-called decoupling? Do you think it's going to be Ethereum's merge or the next Bitcoin halving or when CBDCs officially kick into action? What are your thoughts here? Well, you know, obviously, usual disclaimer, not financial advice, but in terms of decoupling at some theoretical point in the future, I can give you my opinion, uh, not even a formal analysis, just my opinion here. Is Ethereum uh, merge going to drive decoupling? Probably not likely. The Bitcoin having, again, probably not terribly likely. Central bank digital currency adoption, that might actually tighten correlations between digital assets uh, like Bitcoin and stocks because you're actually creating uh, you know, further sort of interdependencies in the system if you're able to buy, uh, if you're able to basically buy uh, crypto in fiat that's issued by central banks. So, you know, obviously, I've said this on Real Vision before, if I had to take a silly guess about what would drive decoupling, I would think it would be high and sustained long-term inflation in the economy. Why is that, Ash? Well, you know, because it's a case of a truly off-the-grid use case for Bitcoin. This is something that that Bitcoiners have been talking about uh, for some time. It hasn't come to pass yet, but it may come to pass in the future. Again, we're looking at this uh, as a sort of a theoretical question. Uh, but I suspect you could argue uh, that Bitcoin might begin to look more favorable under conditions where you see essentially uh, inflation rising very rapidly in the economy, prices uh, rising very rapidly. That would sort of make sense intuitively. You know, Mark Yusko is actually talking about the performance of Bitcoin in Argentina. You know, when we talk about the price of Bitcoin, we say this all the time on the show, what's the price of Bitcoin? And what we're really talking about here when we discuss it without sort of further qualifying it is BTC USD, sort of as a, as a traditional FX trading pair. Uh, basically, what we're saying is that one Bitcoin buys you, well, right now about 19222 US dollars. But it looks very different when you look at that in different terms. For example, when you look at BTC ARS, that's Bitcoin Argentine peso. So, you know, this is a very different way of thinking about it. Mark Yusko actually pointed out how fit much more favorably Bitcoin has performed versus the Argentine peso, probably not surprisingly, since it's gotten, since the Argentine peso has gotten absolutely hammered uh, in international FX markets. But, you know, really, it is just a guess about thinking about this. This is something, again, many Bitcoiners, many very smart Bitcoiners uh, have believed was going to happen for some time. Until now, it hasn't. In fact, what we've seen is the exact opposite, which is this sort of one to one correlation, uh, the, the so-called everything trade, where the correlation of everything goes uh, to one. So that's what we've seen. Maybe we'll see it in the future. Just kind of a guess about how one might think about what a theoretical decoupling could look like, Paul. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks, Ash. And yes, very important what you said. This is not financial advice. And then finally, our last clip. Bitcoin is almost synonymous with huge price swings. As Ash says all the time, volatility. So what is actually the case? Uh, Brian's analysis on this might surprise you. So take a look. Brian, finally, we were talking a little bit off camera about the price history of Bitcoin. You have some interesting statistics that talk about some of the asymmetries there. Give us a sense of your view. So if you look over the last eight years, um, most of the days that you own Bitcoin, it's either flat or down. 
And what I mean by that is that just look at your 2021. In your 2021, if you take the four best days out of the 365 days of the year, the four best days for Bitcoin, if you take those out, Bitcoin actually had a negative return. So all of your return last year when Bitcoin was up, you know, yeah, I think it was up like 80% last year, all the, all the return came in four days. And so if you take those out, um, you know, Bitcoin's either flat or down. So if you go back over the last eight years and you look at that, all of the returns for Bitcoin have come in 50 days out of about 4,000 days. And so what that means is that 98% of the time you own Bitcoin, it's either flat or down. And only 2% of the days that you own it, it's going up a lot. And so for most of the time, people are in pain when they own Bitcoin. And that's just part of the price that you pay for this asset that's been the best performing asset 10 out of the past 13 years. And it's outperformed small cap stocks, large cap stocks, emerging markets, bonds, REITs, cash, you know, all the different asset classes. Bitcoin's been the best performing asset class 10 out of the past 13 years, but it's painful to own it. And if you've invested in Bitcoin over the last year, you feel that pain today. But, you know, all I can say is be patient because all those returns come in like four to six days a year. And you just have to sit around, own it, knowing that, you know, 300 of the days a year, it's not doing anything. Wow, that's such a fascinating metric shared here by Brian. I didn't know that about Bitcoin. Ash, how can it be really that the best performing asset during the last decade is down 80% of the time? What do you make of Brian's answer during the last clip? Well, in a word, the answer is volatility. That's what happens when you get jagged price movements. Obviously, uh, when the price of an asset rises, you're having over a sustained period of time, you're having more increases than declines. Uh, but the, the reality is that this is an incredibly volatile asset class. You see a great deal of jumping around uh, and you see actually a kind of clustering of the, the days where Bitcoin goes up. It's going up substantially where it's it's sort of eroding in slower uh, increments. Uh, by the way, I just wanted to point this out by way of sober reflection here. And this is an incredibly important point. Just because BTC is the best performing asset class of the last decade, you can still lose money when speculating in it. If you bought Bitcoin at the high... Uh, of nearly 69,000 in November of 2021 with Bitcoin trading at about 19,000 today you lost over 70% of the money of the money that you invested in it uh, so that is of course uh, on paper if you didn't sell but if you if you got out uh, you lost that actually uh, in your physical wallet and I mean that's a difficult thing and we, we should we should also sort of point that out because I think it's an important point but he's really talking about is the the sort of the weird quirks and the microstructure and the way it trades. But I think uh, it's really important for people to understand the bigger overarching point here about the risk uh, as well as the reward. And remember, when you think about risk, it's generally in financial markets, you're always thinking about it uh, in, in sort of relation to the potential reward. And that's what makes uh, that's what makes digital assets, Bitcoin uh, and others, such an interesting asset class to talk about, to think about uh, and to have these shows about. That's right. That's what this show is about. Thank you so much, Ash, as always. Let's move on to the takeaways. So here's what I learned today and what the viewers can take away from your conversation with Brian Estes. Brian thinks right now that Bitcoin is very undervalued. He uses several models to reach that conclusion. The historical price trend growth, 
Metcalf's law, a plan B stoke to flow ratio and the goal to Bitcoin ratio. He also says that the Fed is trying to dampen demand, which poses a huge risk for the economy. Brian also says that there's a scope for a big drawdown for different types of assets. And then for now, crypto and equities remain highly correlated, but Brian expects this to change. This is because Bitcoin is a network which operates differently than stocks and similar assets. So, finally, he points out that Bitcoin perceived volatility can be misleading. Historically, Bitcoin is usually flat or down. For example, its huge gains last year accumulated in just four days. That means that 361 days of the year you were down or flat and you had four days to really make those gains. So missing out on those days could have a huge implications for you and for your portfolio. And now, Ash, let's move to my favorite part of this show, which is the viewer's question. Why? Well, because this show is made for you guys. So here's when we're in, we interact with you. Here we have the first one for, coming from Jonathan M. on the Real Vision website. And he says, as the costs come down for AI-generated art, will it get cheap enough that artistic NFTs fall by the wayside? Why buy anything when the AI is the only artist? This is a great question. Uh, Jonathan M., you're asking a question at the intersection of the two most perplexing topics, uh, perhaps, of the 20th and 21st century here, uh, which are art and cryptocurrency. You know, if you think about uh, if you think about the history of art over the last hundred years, uh, you probably could have made this argument sort of in the wake of Jackson Pollock, which would be, hey, why uh, why should we pay a lot of money for art when any uh, when anyone can do it? My seven year old kid uh, can make a painting that looks like that just by dripping on the floor. So this really is an interesting question. I, I would say ultimately, you know, what what drives the valuation of art uh, is is the what drives the valuation of just about anything, and it's scarcity, right? Supply and demand. Uh, and so when you have projects that are that are in demand. Uh, because they have a fixed supply. And remember, one of the interesting things about cryptocurrency in terms of its interaction with the art world is this idea of provable scarcity, the ability to essentially, in a decentralized way, uh, dem demonstrably prove through the properties of math and physics that something is or, or unique, is something is an original, something is uh, not faked. So this is really interesting. Um, if you knew the answer to this question, if I knew the answer to this question, we'd probably be very wealthy speculating on art. But it is a, it is just an incredibly interesting thing to think about. By the way, I'll leave you with this one thought. If you have some time over this weekend and you're looking for a, a documentary to just kick back and have a glass of red wine and watch, there's a terrific movie called Marcel Duchamp, The Art of the Possible. It's on Amazon now. Uh, and it basically talks about this, this sort of conceptualization of art, which I think is just incredibly relevant here uh, in the age of artistic NFTs. Uh, Marshall Duchamp, you may remember, uh, is the guy who uh, sometime in the 1940s or 50s uh, took a urinal, signed it R. Mutt, and sent it to an art museum, and this became art. Uh, so, you know, the question about what is art, what is valuable, what is scarcity, these are fascinating questions. I don't think, uh, to answer your question in a short form, I don't think that AI-generated art is somehow going to... Uh, you know, essentially drive the cost to zero. I suspect we're probably going to see the opposite. This is just my opinion here. We're going to see the opposite as AI art becomes something that is more in the mainstream. I suspect it's going to be in greater demand. Uh, and therefore, this supply and demand, the scarcity, provable scarcity uh, that we can do through these distributed networks will probably increase the price over time. But again, just a bet. And by the way, these things are cyclical. Obviously, they're boom and bust cycles in the art market. They're boom and bust cycles in the crypto space. Uh, so obviously, a lot of volatility there. But just a fascinating conversation. And thank you for the question. It's a great one.
That's a great question. Yeah, and, and to your point, let's never forget that actually this year, I think it was or probably last, some people paid over six six figures for rock JPEG. So art is very subjective. You never know what's going to pop out. Our next question comes from Maximus, a Real Vision intern. Thanks, Maximus, for tuning in the show. So is the GameStop FTX partnership more important for GameStop or for FTX and the crypto community? Mm, this is a good one. Uh, I'll give you just my my gut reaction to that, which is I think it's probably more important to uh, GameStop. Uh, FTX obviously has a very well-established business model. We know what FTX does. We know how FTX makes money. Uh, in the case of uh, in the case of GameStop, they are very much I think searching for a use case. They're searching for uh, you know some something to hang their hat on in terms of what they do. So I think it's probably a bigger upside here uh, for GameStop. Relatively limited downside for FTX, so I think asymmetric probably more important to GameStop. That's right, Ash, and thanks so much for answering your questions. As I always say, ladies and gentlemen, with you, the great Ash Bennington. Thanks for everything and your insights and everything you shared with us here today. And for everyone watching, if you want your questions answered with us, never forget to drop down your comments down below in the chat box in YouTube, or you can tweet at us. And well, that's it for today's show. Thank you so much for watching. As always, don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channels and smash that like button, as always, for the YouTube algorithm. And remember, this is your show, guys. We want to hear from you and what's working, what's not. So feel free to drop a comment down below and let us know your feedback. We really appreciate it. What guests do you want to see? What should, theme should we cover? What do you see? want to see more often here in this show? So yes, like I said, I, we appreciate your time here with us today and tomorrow we got Raul Pal's interview with Animoca co-founder Yatsu. This is going to be a great one. You can't miss it. So never forget to subscribe to Real Vision Crypto on the website for free. As always, for free to watch it. See you next week here live on the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing.